If you would, take your Bibles out and open them to the book of Daniel. There we resume our study this morning. We begin chapter 5 this morning, which the incident of the handwriting on the wall. And, of course, a very sobering reality, as any of the narratives here in this book are sobering, just because of the reality of what they're dealing with. You know, we, it's easy to let this stay in the literary realm and forget that these are real people who are really experiencing, in some instances, a judgment of God, or at least the promise of coming judgment and having to deal with the sobering reality that, especially in, in, in chapter 5, uh, Belshazzar's life is found wanting. He's been weighed and measured and found wanting in, in the Lord. And, and to hear that, that the notion that you have been weighed and measured and found wanting, we must appreciate the sobering truth of that, the sobering reality of that type of, of, of pronouncement of judgment, uh, which is why these books sometimes, they, they, of course, they function as informative. They give us truth, right? They give us truth. But it also kind of functions as a warning. So why do we have the Scriptures? Well, for one, to teach us truth, but also to lay bare sinful hearts and sinful activity, to lay bare what happens when we pick a pathway that ceases to be Godward, that when we decide to capitulate in whatever sense, maybe it's a capitulation to cultural norms, maybe it's a capitulation to some sort of persecution, and we give in and we go off the Godward path, or we hear so much about ourselves, we begin to believe that we are, are, are better than we are, and we start doubting truth of Scripture. We, we have these things here as a warning, as guideposts to say, hey, it's very easy to get sidetracked in the wilderness, and if you do, there are consequences. And we need to take that seriously. Of course, the Bible is not just a legalistic book about do's and don'ts. Are there some do's and don'ts in here? Sure, there are. But why? Why does the Scriptures try to keep us on a particular path? Well, if the New Testament is true, and it is, and it tells us that God is love, and He is, one of the things that these stories are reminding us is how to walk in the love of God. So, so often we disconnect obedience from love, and we can't do that. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. And so when we look at stories like this that are, that are definitely setting down an ethical standard or an ethical norm, it's not doing so just so we can be nice and pretty whitewashed tombs. It is telling us this is how we best walk in the love of God. And we need to take that to heart. And so as we look at Daniel 5, and of course we have the whole incident with Belshazzar. is We've kind of got an abrupt transition. We'll get into this in a minute. And the writing on the wall, we are looking at something that was meant to be a sobering message of judgment. It's meant to grab hold of anybody else who around to hear this proclamation for them to take inventory of their lives. And so hopefully as we read these, these stories, it continues to do that for us as well. So this morning, without further delay, Daniel chapter 5, we will be looking at Daniel 5, 1 to 12. So, beloved of God, hear now God's infallible, inerrant word. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. 
They drink wine and praise the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed and his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers. The king declared to, to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold, a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed, and his color changed, and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him, and King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. So in the reading of God's word, may he add his blessing. Please pray with me. Father, your word is, is true. It is powerful. It is bold. We need your truth. We need your power. And we need your boldness. Be with us this morning as we study. Open up our minds and hearts to receive from you and use this to transform us more and more into the image of Christ, we pray in his name. Amen. Perhaps you're familiar with the two names in church history, George Whitfield and John Wesley, uh, both 18th century people, uh, both uh, gifted men. Uh, George Whitfield, the, the, the more gifted preacher of the two, Wesley being the more gifted administrator of the two. But their paths crossed, God saw fit to cross their paths, and early on in their preaching career, they, they kind of had an, an itinerant preaching ministry where they went around and preached, and of course they were looked down upon because they were willing to preach outdoors. Back at the time during the Church of England, that was very frowned upon. You didn't teach outdoors because it was outside of the decorum of the Anglican Church, or the Church of England is what it's called. And these men continued to work together, to labor together, and to amass a following, people who were just spellbound by George Whitfield's capacity to preach. He was a preacher and a half. Well, as these men grew, they began to grow apart. They began to isolate from one another because they, they took different theological positions. George Whitfield followed the more uh, reformed path. John Wesley began to follow more the Arminian path. And, and while they had private debates back and forth about how they understood, especially Romans, that was their big debate often, it's how they understood Romans, they often didn't let it go out in public. They didn't let it kind of get too public because George Whitfield and they wanted to preserve some unity in the church. Well, finally, they started what would become the Methodist Church together, but they split apart. And as they grew further apart, uh, as, as is always the case, different people who were followers of Whitfield or followers of Wesley would be antagonistic one to another. <laughs> in one instance, one of the followers of Wesley approached George Whitfield and said, Reverend Whitfield, do you think you'll see John Wesley in heaven? And he said, no. 
And the guy seemed so pleased and smug, and then Whitfield said, for he will be so close to the throne and I so far away, I shall not see Dr. Wesley. I love that story because in a moment where he could have chosen to be super arrogant over a fawning fan, he decided the route of humility. He decided that humility was the best response. And George Whitfield, given his popularity and the, his capacity for preaching, he was a humble man. There is an excellent biography about him by Arnold Dallimore that is worth the read. But he understood in a moment, I can choose arrogance or I can choose humility. I can be arrogant. I can be arrogant and allow you to fan the flame of my popularity, or I can choose humility and count another brother better than myself. When we think about arrogance, right, it's not unique to monarchs, it's not unique to nobles, it's not unique to those of means. Arrogance is a human problem. If you are in this room and you have lived any amount of time, I'm going to guess that at some point in your life, you have struggled with pride. You may be struggling with it right now. You may be, that may not be your primary struggle, but to be arrogant, to be prideful is a human problem. It's a human problem. It doesn't, doesn't discriminate against wealth status, or class. We could easily say and can say that pride is the root of all sin. I mean, when we think about pride, it took Satan out of heaven. Pride sank Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to sin and death, the pride that this fruit is going to give me wisdom and I'll be like God. And so when we think about pride, it's got a very sordid history in terms of what it's done to humanity. The arrogant, though, when we think about how arrogance is played out in the world, what, are, what is the height of arrogance? Well, I think Psalm 14 captures the height of arrogance when Psalm 14 says, the fool says in his heart that there is no God. And so when we want to look at arrogance, we can look at lower levels of pride and arrogance, but what is the height of arrogance? Where does, arrogant, where does an arrogant heart ultimately end up? It ends up with someone choosing foolishness by spouting that there is no God. And beloved of God, we live in a culture of Psalm 14 people. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. You can hear nothing more arrogant than that. And it comes out in all sorts of ways in human philosophies and other places. Nebuchadnezzar suffered from this type of arrogance and God humbled him. Belshazzar is now following in the footsteps of, of his his predecessor, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, because he's living a life of luxury. We're going to break, break this all down here in just a few minutes, but this, the, the idea that surrounds these first 12 verses is the arrogance of a human being, a man who thinks he's something when he truly is nothing, a man who lives as if he is something more than he truly is, a man who has discounted that there is a God in heaven who reigns and rules because he is, you know, what is it, Descartes? I think, therefore I am. I am the center of all things. I am. I am. This is what the arrogant man, the foolish man, person says. And it comes out in Scripture. We see this here. God's constant work among humans, his constant work among humanity is the humbling of arrogance is the humbling of arrogance. Where do we see this picture best displayed? In Jesus, who had every right to rule, reign, and be worshipped, took on flesh, and then bore a cross through the city streets and hung naked on that cross. 
and died for you and me so that we could live. So that brings the arrogant man to his knees before the greatest display of humility that humanity has ever seen. So when we're we're dealing with this, we understand that God's work in in human history is to humble the arrogant. That's exactly what Daniel 5, especially these first 12 verses, is getting us to see. Now, before we move into the text, there is some history here that we need to cover. So bear with me for just a few moments. Belshazzar is not the true king of Babylon. His father, Nabonidus, is. Of course, you don't see Nabonidus mentioned here, and there's a reason for that. Belshazzar and Nabonidus were, were part of a co-regency king. This is, this is all secular history beautifully clarifies Daniel 5. I mean, it supports it. It actually supports what Daniel wrote here. But Nabonidus was the king. Nabonidus didn't really want to be king. He also wanted to replace the primary god in, in Babylon, which was Marduk, with this moon god Sin, which was not a popular move with his priesthood. So what his priests and some nobles just shipped Nabonidus off to a place called Tema. 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 It's Tema, sorry. It doesn't matter. Don't worry about that. They shipped him off there where he begins to build this temple, and he, the rest of his life is given to building this temple to this moon god, and he lived in his own world. So Belshazzar becomes the de facto king in Babylon. Belshazzar and Nabonidus took over in about 555 B.C., and they reigned. What we are getting here, what, you are, what we are reading here, is literally the last night of the Babylonian Empire. And it follows that they reign until the Persians come in and take over. So Daniel 5 is capturing not only the height of arrogance in Belshazzar, hey, don't do this. He's capturing the destruction of a city that was a, an idol to man's greatness. So, oh yeah, remember when I told you that golden head was going to be crushed? It's about to happen. And we're about to witness it. So I love how Scripture just unfolds everything and shows us God's sovereignty, God's judgment, God's mercy even. So with those thoughts in mind, there's one idea I want for us to see this morning. It's this. The arrogance of idolatry is humbled by God's Word. The arrogance of idolatry is humbled by God's Word. It was May 1864 during the Civil War. It was the Battle of the Wilderness. Union General John Sedgwick was inspecting troops along the line. He was walking across different places, parapets, inspecting, making sure that his troops were ready for the battle that was about to ensue. And he stopped at one particular parapet that was exposed, and he stood there like this looking at the enemy line. And one of his officers said, General, you need to get down. You're going to get shot. And his response is classic. Nonsense. They couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. A few minutes later, he fell over mortally wounded. That would be the wound that killed him. Uh, He was shot because he let a moment of arrogance take his life. He was unnecessarily shot by the enemy who caught him exposed, and he died a few days later from those wounds. So when we look at pride, when we look at arrogance, arrogance can lead to physical death because the arrogant person, the person who indulges arrogance, ultimately indulges in something that we'll call biblical stupidity. When, when, when the Bible tells us the way of God and we go directly in the opposite of the way of God, that is knowing the right thing to do and doing the wrong thing anyway. Any military man knows if there are guns on the other side of a line, you don't get out from behind your cover and stand there like this. I mean, you're, you're asking to get shot. 
you're, you're allowing arrogance to push you in a direction where you do something that you know is stupid. And I'm not trying to be caustic. Biblical stupidity, it's a thing. Read the Proverbs, it's in there. Those who know the right way and they choose the wrong one. When we're looking at arrogance and we combine it here in Daniel 5 with idolatry, they do go hand in hand because arrogance and idolatry do the same thing. They lead to death. Again, we've already referenced Genesis 1. There was an arrogance there. Hey, I'll be like God. There was an idolatry there. Uh, worshiping this thing that's going to give me what I think I need rather than trusting in the God who's already given it to me. We see this in cults. If you study cults and look at the nature of cults, what do they often do? They draw you into this cult where they make you believe, where you, where you get to believe things that aren't true. And how do they often end? If you look at just the history of cults in America, think of Jonestown, Think of the, Bridge, uh, the Branch Davidians over in Waco. I mean, not only did they die spiritually, those people died. It killed them. Because arrogance and idolatry, beloved of God, that's what they want to do. The arrogance and idolatry seek to consume human beings as food, to reduce them down to this thing. It's so ironic, isn't it? The arrogant man puffs his chest out and he does, look at me, look at me. And all the while, that arrogance and pride is shrinking him down to the size of nothing so that he's easily consumed. He becomes a meal for the enemy. So when we're looking at this, what we're seeing here, why do I keep using the word arrogant? Because Roman, or, uh, uh, Daniel 5, 1 to 4 is all about the arrogance of Belshazzar. There's a feast happening right now. They are feasting. This is not atypical of Babylonian culture. We have plenty of documents that talk about how raucous and how much debauchery went on in these types of feasts. They went all the time. This is something that kings did to celebrate themselves. And so when we're looking here, King Belshazzar made a, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of them, in front of that thousand. We've got Belshazzar. We've already mentioned he's in a co-regency with Nabonidus. This is about 13 years after Nebuchadnezzar has died. And so the Babylonian empire is winding down. And so when we're looking at here, Belshazzar is the last king in Babylon, and he lived, as we've already noted, he lived to see the end of what Nebuchadnezzar had built. He lived to see the prophecy of the statue being smashed come to pass. He lived to see the end of an age. And I want you to look at this. Why do we say arrogant? King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords, and he drank wine in front of them. When you see that in front of them, it's very interesting. It would be tempting just to assume that, in other words, he was in their presence and he drank wine. That's not what that, that phrase means, actually. It doesn't just mean that he drank wine in their presence. It means that he made a spectacle in front of them, that he was out in the open, almost theatrical in nature as he drank and was doing antics for all the attention to be on this man, this great king, Belshazzar. He is living it up. He's hamming it up. He's in, entertaining the crowd. All eyes are on Belshazzar. And let me tell you what's going on outside the city right now. The Persian army is around it. They are besieging it. It's not, it's not as if the Persian army is away. They're there. They're there that night. They're there. They're there to take the Babylonian culture. And what is he doing? He's getting drunk in front of his lords and nobles. He's making a spectacle. You know why? Because he says, they're out there. We're in here. We're safe. We have nothing to worry about. 
Babylon was a fortress. The royal city really was the thick walls where chariots could drive side by side on it. They had the river that ran right through the middle of it, so they had a water supply. They had storerooms, so they kept themselves stocked with food. In other words, we have everything we need. We are our own providers. We can take care of ourselves. We don't need anything else. What they didn't count on is what would happen when the Persian army diverted the river. The river shrank down. Their army just tunneled right underneath the wall and had them dead to rights in the city. They were trapped in their own city and couldn't get away, and the Persians took over. That is what arrogance does. It lulls lulls us into this place of fake peace and calm until the trap claps shut and we're caught. Thank God that he claps the trap shut because we need to be caught. We need to be divested of that type of arrogance. There was no humility here before the enemy. There was no preparing for war. Of course, we get the disastrous decision in verse 2 when Belshazzar had tasted the wine. I want to stop right there. That might, there's a couple things that, that could be. For one, it's not just that he took a sip of wine. In the ancient world, since he is the host of this party, sometimes as the official ceremony kickoff, it would be a very kind of big deal where they would bring the wine out to the king. The king would taste the wine and toast the crowd and the party would start. It could mean that. But judging by the way it's written here in the Aramaic, most likely what it means, not that he had just tasted the wine, but he was inebriated. He'd been tasting the wine for a while now and feeling good from the wine. And that's when he makes this disastrous decision to command that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem would be brought back. So, so this, this little moment of inebriation, he's a little drunk. He makes this decision He drinks from temple vessels from Jerusalem. Why is this bad? Those are sacred vessels that had been sanctified to the Lord. In in pagan cultures, superstition was was real. The conquerors often did not desecrate sacred vessels of even the conquered because they saw those things as holding special power. It should not be lost on us. It should not be lost on us that we never hear of Nebuchadnezzar doing this. Never. He doesn't mess with those temple articles because he, like most good pagans, was superstitious and thought, this will bring a bad omen on me if I do this. Belshazzar didn't even have that much sense. So he gets a little inebriated. He decides, hey, we're going to live it up tonight. Let's go get those sacred uh, vessels from the temple of Jerusalem and let's drink wine out of it and continue down this pathway of inebriation. So they 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 desecrated what was sacred They desecrated what was holy. Beloved, what is that? That just gets us to the heart of what idolatry is. It's profane. Idolatry is profane. It takes us away from truth and beauty and goodness and gets us to focus on, you know, our own pleasure, our own way, our own whatever we want to add in there. So they... Profane. They make profane what is beautiful. When we look at idolatry, and we look at most things that are false, the goal is to pervert the truth. Now, I'm using the word pervert in its most literal sense. If something is perverted, it's bent. It's messed up. And so what does idolatry seek to do? It seeks to pervert the truth. There are some aspects in idolatry that we might say, okay, well, that sounds true. But the goal of it is to take what is true and bend it so that it is no longer what it was. 
And that's exactly what we see here. Try to pervert truth, give in to self, do what I want to do. This is the height of arrogance here. This is the height of arrogance when it says they drank wine and they praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. So they take these sacred vessels of Yahweh and as they're imbibing, they're blessing false gods who have nothing to do with these vessels. And we see the height of arrogance there is to ascribe God's glory to what is false. To ascribe God's glory to what is false. This Daniel, Daniel 5 stands as a warning. Holiness is important. Faithfulness is important. The worship of God as he is is important. Not ascribing to something else that belongs to God. Yeah, he, he continues to make this plain through these warnings, through these narratives that he's given us. Well, so we've, we've got the context. They're at this feast. They're living it up. They're nice and, you know, inebriated. Everybody's having a good time. And then the buzzkill happens when verse 5, it's like immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared. I mean, could you imagine us in here in the big black curtain behind me and just seeing a hand come out of nowhere and start writing on it? Yeah, that would, that would fluster me too. Um, I would be... Yeah, I'd be scared. I'm not allowed. I would be scared. So immediately, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. So immediately, what is this hand doing? Well, what we know and what we'll see later on, it's announcing judgment. This hand appears out of nowhere as the finger writing on the wall, and it's announcing judgment. What's interesting here, and Daniel notes this, is that the king saw the hand as it wrote. And that's an important detail because God was speaking directly to Belshazzar. Now, Belshazzar can't understand the message, right? He's going to need an interpreter. But this is where, again, we see God, the God of heaven, the one and only true Yahweh, is speaking directly to a pagan king because he has a grievance against this king, because this king has sinned majorly against God. But we have the issue the feasting, the arrogance, the desecration of the temple vessels. And then we have God's direct revelation as a response to that. But look at what this says. I love the fine details here. It's so important that he writes this. Where does he write? He writes on the plaster wall of the king's palace, which, by the way, when they've excavated some of the royal palaces in Babylonian culture, they have plaster walls. They actually plastered their walls. He adds a detail here of, hey, it was, he wrote it on a plaster wall. That's very consistent with what we have from archaeology. But he says here that he wrote it on this plaster wall opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as he wrote. In other words, he wrote, here's a wall, here's a lampstand. He wrote it on this wall. Why? So that the light could illuminate the message so that there's no mistaken that God is writing something here and that Daniel includes this detail is, is really kind of cool. This wall was well illuminated. It's illuminated by the candle. So he's going to see it. He's going to see the message. There's no getting away from it. What I love, what this speaks to us, though, is the revelation of God. What does God do? By the power of his own self and through the use of light, God illumines some truth to these people. Now, granted, they don't know what it is yet, but they're going to. The light, God brings revelation and the light makes it known. God is light and he uses the light to, to make his revelation come out 
Beloved, why, why mention the light and, and see by the candle? Well, obviously for pragmatic purposes because that's how they had to see it. But why else? Because the lost live in darkness. The lost live in total darkness. And God, by direct revelation and light, is revealing something to these lost people. Now, it's, it's game over for Belshazzar. That's it. But there are people in this room who could potentially be transformed by the message of the living God. That is why we preach the gospel. That is why we share with the lost, not because we're so great at it, but because God has revealed something and by his own light made it known, and we know that people are living in darkness, and we want to see them rescued. And we see that here. We see God's, the way, his way of working here. Now, and twice in this paragraph in verses 6 and 9, we're told about the demeanor change of the king. Very graphic. His color changed. You know, he turned green or, or, or white. His thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way. And, you know, his knees knocked together. I mean, we're talking about somebody who has lost bodily function, more or less. He's lost all bodily function because he is afraid. He is mentally, physically arrested. What does he do? He does what Nebuchadnezzar did. When in doubt... Call your wise men, call the Chaldeans, call the astrologers. Appeal to all the pagan wisdom you have and see what that brings you. So he appeals. He appeals to the, the people he thinks can, can help him. And what does he do in that appeal? Well, he says, whoever reads this writing and shows me the interpretation in verse 7 shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. It's interesting that he says third ruler there, which kind of supports the idea that he was in a co-regency. He couldn't give him second because that's what he was. So he'll give him the next best thing. Well, you'll be third. You'll be just after me. So that supports the theory of that. But what is he doing here? When, he, when he, he, he offers this, he offers this, he makes an appeal to one of the baser aspects of human nature, which is greed. You'll have riches. You'll look wealthy. You'll have position if you do this thing for me because that's the best that paganism can do. That's the best that idolatry can do. It can't it can't seal your heart. It can't change your mind. It can't change your soul. It can't rescue you from death. What it can do is offer you all the base things that your flesh wants. Money, power, notoriety, all these things. That's the best that Belshazzar can do because it's the best that paganism can do. But when the pagans come, all the riches in the world cannot make them see God's message. All the money, all the power all the status, all the wisdom accrued through their pagan books cannot make them see God's message. And there's a reason for it. God's message requires God's man. These people who are godless and against God are not going to be able to see the truth of Yahweh because God has raised up a man who can see the truth and will proclaim it. God is in control of this whole thing. When we look at this, then the king called the wise men that came in that couldn't read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. And again, we read that King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. When we think about this, there is an overarching application here that is, is worthy for us to remember. So Belshazzar and his kingdom have lived as enemies of God just primarily because of their own philosophy of what they view as truth. They, they've 
They've lived in opposition to God. And where does opposition to God lead? It leads to pain and death. Opposition to God leads to pain and death. It leads to bad ends. Why? Because when we are opposed to God, because when we are opposed to God, beloved of God, we're opposed to truth. God is the truth. We're opposed to life because God is life. We're opposed to true knowledge because God is the omniscient one who knows all things. We're opposed to true understanding because it is by the light of revelation that we see and understand. There is no good ending for someone who lives in opposition to Yahweh. Yes, it may look fun for a season. Yes, they may have small victories along the way. But they are slowly, as we said, atrophy. They slowly atrophy in their mind and heart until they become as nothing. Because their lives have been given to what is fading away, and they too shall fade away with it. Beloved, when we live for God, when we live for truth, when we root our lives in His life and in His knowledge, the way is not easy. The way is right. The way is not always fun, but it is good. He's writing to remind Belshazzar, you've lived for death, and now death is what you'll have. The last three verses in this opening paragraph reintroduce Daniel to the story. It's interesting here that when Daniel comes in, typically in the book of Daniel, when Daniel comes in, it is a mercy of God and it is a judgment of God. When we see him declaring Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, there is a mercy there, there's a judgment. When we see him deciphering the writing on the wall, it is a mercy that Daniel is present to be a voice of truth and a culture of falsehood, but it is also a judgment. So when this queen comes in in verse 10, the queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, really because she heard a commotion, so she comes in. Uh, The ESV doesn't specify that it's his mother, but it most likely is because we've already been told that all his wives and concubines are with him in the feasting hall. So the queen here most likely is the mother of Belshazzar. So she hears this commotion and she comes in. And she does her perfunctory thing, O king, live forever. And then kind of like, this is the wink-wink version where it says, let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. It's kind of like the modern-day translation, get it together. Get it together, okay? Uh, We've we've got to do something here. The words of verse 11, there is a man in your kingdom, is a rebuke to Belshazzar. And I'll tell you why. What she's indicating is he doesn't know Daniel. Daniel. There is a man in your kingdom. She's having to explain to him who he is. There's a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers because an excellent spirit, she repeats herself, an excellent spirit, knowledge, and an understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, solve problems were found in this Daniel. She is explaining to him who this man who rescued Nebuchadnezzar a few times, who he is. Belshazzar doesn't know. It reminds me of the story uh, of when the kingdom split, the northern and the southern kingdom, Rehoboam, was offered counsel from older, wiser men, and he rejected it for the counsel of his peers, and and it destroyed him. Belshazzar has not indulged in Daniel's counsel, we could speculate, for 13 years. 
He has this, he has this resource, and he's offered not to use it. Why do we call this a, a, a chapter or a paragraph, rather, about arrogance? Because we see it again and again and again. There's a man in your kingdom. Well, what's special about him? Well, he's filled with the Holy Spirit of the gods. We could translate that the Holy Spirit of God. Nebuchadnezzar had often appealed to Daniel, had often come to Daniel, had often invited Daniel to help him. But Belshazzar had disregarded him. But even this pagan lady, even this lady who is a pagan, recognizes there's something different about Daniel. That's who you should call. Don't worry with these other fools. You call this man. But isn't it interesting, too? I love how she does this. So subtle, so subtle. When she's talking about him, she says, because an excellent spirit and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, solve problems were found in this Daniel, not Belteshazzar. She clarifies, whom the king called Belteshazzar. But now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Why, is, why, why, does, why do the writers take pains to do this? To disassociate with what's about to happen from the gods of Babylon and to locate it where it's supposed to be, under the power of Yahweh. This is God's man. He's bringing God's wisdom. He's going to clarify God's message by the power of God. This man, Daniel, not some iteration of him, not some Chaldean, not some astrologer, not some diviner, not some magician. We need Daniel because Daniel is God's man called for this moment to do this task. Now, she doesn't know how truly she speaks, but we do. We see the fact that she is drawing out this idea that Daniel is God's man doing God's work in the midst of of a pagan empire. Well, what do we conclude? That God is able, not paganism. I love the faith of this. Now let Daniel be called and he will show you the interpretation. Doesn't even speculate that he might, that he can, that it's possible. He will do it. That's what she says. What is, when we see this, we, we take heart because it's God's light that scatters darkness. It is God's light that scatters darkness. It is God who reveals truth. Daniel, in this moment, is God's answer to this situation. Sin is always going to push us toward pleasure and arrogance. Sin is always going to push us into seasons where we indulge the self. Let me tell you that God may lead us through pain. Let me say it this way. God will, through certain seasons, lead us through pain. But why? Why do, we, why do we go through pain? I don't know. I don't know all the reasons you may go through pain or I might go through pain, but I was reminded by a friend this past week. I was commiserating with him in his pain. He's going through a struggle. He reminded me of a book we'd both read many years ago called The Wounded Healer. And he said, you know, I don't know why God often calls us to walk through valleys, but I know if his people, and we're going to function as wounded healers, we've got to feel the sting of the wounds so we can appreciate the balm of the healing. It was really insightful. Thought, Amen. Why does God lead us through pain? Maybe sometimes. So when the person comes alongside you who's in pain, you can put your arm around and say, I too know what it's like to be in pain. Let me walk with you. Um, God leads. God, God, God is victorious over idolatry. God is victorious over paganism. Would that we all had an easier road, but the hard roads help us to walk with other people who are walking on hard roads. Lord, what can we say at the end of this paragraph? Arrogance is temporary. Humility is eternal. 
Arrogance assumes self-sufficiency, doesn't it? Arrogance says, I'm the master of my own faith. I am the captain of my soul. Humility says, I am dependent. Humility says, I cannot master my fate. As James would tell us, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. What is it the humble, what is it the humble see that the arrogant don't see? The humble man, the humble woman, the humble person sees their need. They see that I am not enough. They see I don't have all the answers. They see I don't have the strength within me. They see that I need something beyond myself. The arrogant person doesn't see that. The arrogant person doesn't see weakness. The arrogant person thinks that they have plenty of hope. The humble person says, I'm hopeless apart from Yahweh. The arrogant person sees their worth. They see their goodness. The humble person says, my goodness is in Christ. My worth is in Christ. Jesus came to humbly show us how we must walk and live. Jesus showed us how to honor God, and it's summed up in one word, humility before the Lord. Humility. How do we honor God? Yes, well, we love God. We love our, our neighbor. Yes. Where does that begin? It begins in the humility of saying, God is worthy. My neighbor is worthy. Lord, I need you. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for this time together this morning, for this chapter. That is complex. This paragraph is complex in terms of some of the ideas here. And but I even thank you that even secular history gives an amen to this particular part, portion of the narrative. Oh God, but none of that matters, really. What really matters is that you are alive in this book and that your words in this book are the words of the living God, and they are living words, active, meant to transform who we are. May they do that. May they do their work well this morning and on the days that pass by. And I pray that you would continue to help us to decrease, that your spirit in us might increase as John the Baptist prayed. And God, help us to live for you and not for ourselves. Help us to choose humility and not arrogance. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.